Welcome to this episode of To Differ is Divine, a podcast about spiritual permeability from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, with host Bishop Sam Rodman, Bishop of the Diocese, and Rabbi Raquel Jurovics, the diocese's rabbi in residence and former leader of Yavna, a Jewish renewal community in Raleigh. I'm Summerlee Walter, the producer for this podcast, and I will introduce each episode. In the fourth and final episode of our Lenten series, Rabbi Raquel and Bishop Sam discuss reconciliation, the final step in the cycle of sacrifice, repentance, and forgiveness. They consider examples from both Jewish and Christian scripture of reconciliation in a context with which we are all familiar, family drama. Through the stories of Dina, Tamar, Joseph, and the prodigal son, they examine what reconciliation looks like when done well and when done poorly and how, either way, established relationships are disrupted, for better or worse. These disrupted family narratives form the basis for an understanding of broader social relationships that need reconciliation, whether between people of different religions, races, socioeconomic statuses, or backgrounds. Each episode of this podcast includes detailed notes to provide additional context for the religious practices and concepts our hosts discuss. We hope you'll take the time to read them and learn a little bit more about an unfamiliar faith tradition, or maybe even your own. With that, I invite you to enjoy Disruption, the final episode of To Differ is Divine's Lenten series from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. Welcome back to the podcast To Differ is Divine. I'm Rabbi Raquel Jurovics. We're looking at the topic of reconciliation. What might that mean? What constitute perceptible outward signs of the kind of transformation that reconciliation implies? One of the questions we asked each other was what might reconciliation look like within our traditions generally and specifically within scripture? And I thought about some of the family dynamics within the tribe of Jacob, those 12 sons and the insufficiently discussed daughter, Dina. There are so many examples within the Jacob narratives that raise questions for us about the possibility of reconciliation, about the different ways we humans are tempted, perhaps by a desire for control, to enforce outcomes that may only superficially look like reconciliation. It strikes me that there is something of a progress in the sense of a movement from one thing to another, not necessarily an improvement, but certainly increasing insight. I struggle with Jacob as a personality and think that some of these narratives betray to us his own struggles and how difficult the lives of the patriarchs and matriarchs were and how much leeway we are asked to offer them in their struggling, just as we would like some leeway and grace in our own struggles. I think of the narrative of Jacob's daughter, Dina, as an example of anger and wounded honor resulting in a reflexive power move that makes reconciliation impossible. It's one of the more frightening and frightful episodes in scripture, filled, as is often the case with ambiguity, where Jacob's daughter Dina goes out on her own to visit with the women living near her, not of her tribe. And the commentators, who often appear to specialize in misogyny, 
to a large extent, blame her. It's the recognizable, oh, something bad happened while she was out? What was she wearing? What was her deportment like? You're going out of the tent in that outfit? Pretty much what victims of sexual assault endure to this day. Dina catches the eye of the prince of Shechem, the nearby town, who woos her, has sex with her, and is smitten with her and goes to her father and asks for her hand in marriage. And rather than finding in this perhaps unwanted relationship a potential for healing between adjacent peoples, Jacob and some of his sons claim it as an opportunity for a rather brutal vengeance. It has always struck me as odd that other places in Scripture make it quite clear that if, as later English would have it, what happens between a man and a maid lead to intercourse, they are then married. It wasn't as though people were posting a notice of their intention to wed. They were not exchanging marriage contracts. They were not exchanging rings. The marriage was affected in its consummation. So it's a little peculiar to me that we have this story that creates a situation that precludes reconciliation. And the details are horrific. Jacob and his son say, of course you can marry Dina, but first you and all the men in your city have to agree to be circumcised, and then you can be part of our tribe and blah, blah, blah. And they agree, which is rather astounding. And then while they are recovering from their circumcisions, Jacob and his sons attack the town. This is not a high point in conciliatory or neighborly interaction. It's one of those texts of terror that we have to figure out, what do we learn from this? And what I take from it is what we do when we feel ourselves most wounded. And this is an example of the kind of, it's a version of honor killing, which is still a problem for us in many cultures to this day. And it is enacted even within our own culture in a perhaps attenuated, but still rather violent disdain for victims of sexual abuse or assault. Whether Dina thought herself to be abused, we don't know. Whether the prince thought that that's what he was doing, or whether in the way of the time and place he was effectuating a marriage, it's still not clear to me either. Then we have Jacob's son, Judah who comes into a role of leadership within his own clan. And he has three sons. The first two come to untimely ends while married to a woman named Tamar. He owes her a marriage to his surviving son, his third son, and he doesn't want to meet that obligation. We'll save the complexities, but Tamar takes the need for repair into her own hands, as it were, tempts apparently very easily, Judah into having intercourse with her as a holy prostitute on the road to the fair at Timnah for the sheep sharing festival. I love that detail. And she sets up a tent on the road as a sacred prostitute, which was a thing then. And Judah turns aside for her. Presumably, she folded her tent immediately thereafter. But then she's discovered to be pregnant and the wonderfully taught narrative where she's brought before Judah for punishment, but she has asked him when he doesn't have anything to pay her with after their interlude together, she asks him for his belt and his staff as surety that he will send a payment. But then she disappears, so he can't pay her. 
And so she comes to him with the evidence that he has fathered the child she's now carrying. And what he says to her, since five minutes before he was prepared to burn her at the stake, is, you are more righteous than I am. I'm the one who's meant to be the judge over this clan, and you have proved out that I have failed to meet my responsibility to you, and I now accept you as my spouse. Now, the text tells us they never had marital relations again, but she bears twins, one of whom is the forebearer of Boaz, who, of course, is the great-grandfather to David. And then we get to Jesus eventually. We have this redemptive inheritance out of a profoundly unjust circumstance and a rather tricky resolution leading to some kind of reconciliation. And I think I want to pause here for Bishop Sam's response, and then maybe the two of us can look a bit at the Joseph narrative as a sign of a more successful reconciliation. But I do love the idea that the line of the Messiah is rooted in a woman who has to take extraordinary means to receive what the social structure of her time said she's entitled to, to bear children, one of whom now will be the progenitor of the Messiah. That is a powerful account of her agency in the redemption of that relationship, of the family, and to have that as part of the, as you point out, the genealogy of David and then Jesus is a very poignant and powerful example of the reconciliation theme that runs through what we sometimes call in the Christian tradition salvation history which is a loaded term, and I recognize that. And yet, the message, not only that there is nothing beyond the redemptive power of God, but that human beings exercising agency in wise and healthy and sometimes cunning ways can actually bring about that promise of reconciliation. I am taken with that interpretation and the connections that you've made because it does embed in the genealogy that leads to the birth of Jesus that redemptive promise and puts reconciliation at the heart of that family's history and the bloodline, literally. So the Joseph story, I think, as you point out, it's a story where the understanding of reconciliation is more easily recognized and celebrated. And to have the two contrasting side by side is a really important and helpful demonstration of the degree to which that promise of reconciliation is woven into the biblical narratives. So I would love to hear your understanding of Joseph, and then I'll add my own. One of the things I most appreciate in the Joseph narrative is how individual personalities within the complicated story come to discover that things are not as they thought they might have been. Joseph starts out with a sense of his own ultimate importance, a sense of being particularly favored, having some sort of a God-ordained future of leadership and power, and receives that sense at a time where he lacks the maturity to know better than to wave that about in front of his siblings, who don't appreciate him being the youngest and dad's favorite. I don't think anybody was talking about birth order and the different attentions lavished on the children who arrive as the parents get closer to a point where they're no longer going to be having children 
All sorts of things are at play. So Joseph mightily annoys his brothers, and they decide they can do without him. The way in which the narrative unfolds, to be trivial about it, reminds me of these wonderful Knives Out movies, The Glass Onion, (laughs) most recently. And you keep peeling things apart, and what you think is going on is different than what you thought is going on. And this stuff is planted within the unfolding narrative. As soon as the brothers sell off Jacob, they don't kill him. They are dissuaded from that by one of the more evolved among them. They sell him off and figure, well, you know, he's not dead. He'll be someplace else. It'll be fine. We don't have to deal with him. But they tell their father that he's dead. That creates its own dynamic of grief and suffering. And it holds Joseph within the family and within their father's memory with a kind of sharp aliveness that means he's never outside of their consciousness. And eventually he finds himself in the role of essentially, he is the one in charge of maintaining the well-being of all of Egypt. And his family of necessity comes south to Egypt to Mitzrayim, to this place of narrowness and constriction, and find themselves before someone they don't recognize because, again, he's dressed in a fancier coat than they will ever have, and they don't know who it is. And he at first doesn't get who they are. And eventually, there's this very complicated unfolding of a plot to bring his father, Jacob, down to Egypt and for a reconciliation with the brothers. This reconciliation is one that is hard for them to believe is unfolding. Because it's dependent on Joseph having come to recognize that what they intended for ill ultimately played out to the advantage not only of him personally, but to his entire family and all of their children and grandchildren and generations yet unborn. That he was put in a position to sustain Egypt and thereby sustain his entire family and all of their descendants the ultimate accumulation of these 10 tribal entities, plus the Levites and the Kohanim, the priestly class, that will eventually experience a liberation from that place of constriction. It isn't until after Jacob dies that Joseph can explain to his still doubting brothers, of course I care for you, of course we are reconciled, because I understand our family drama is part of something far greater. And I think that when we individually and within our societies have to confront the challenge of reconciliation, we are being asked, do you see how what you are fits into a larger story? And that's part of what makes it so difficult to experience, to live into, to sustain a place of reconciliation. It ought to have been enough that Joseph made it possible for his brothers and their families to survive. Their capacity to recognize that their relationship to him was being played out in a larger arena than anybody's individual life was something they were not yet prepared for. And I think that in the Passover slash Lenten, ultimately Easter season, in our preparing for our own liberation from Egypt, and Christians are preparing for the salvational, redemptive lesson of Easter, we are being called to confront what we are often unwilling to recognize. That is, we are part of a much larger story, and one in which our individual choices reflect our entanglement, our agency, and our salvational aspirations. 
Thank you for that clarity about the family drama that the Joseph saga is and the invitation to really make the connection not only to the biblical narrative, but to the ways that our two traditions actually enact in our worship and in our liturgical life some of those same threads that both tie us together but expose the frayed edges, the strands that are frayed. And the family drama of the Joseph saga has always been powerful to me because in the sequence of the larger story, as you pointed us to, the chapters around Joseph tell how the Hebrew people ended up in Egypt. Of course, we know that the story then continues to a later chapter where they are in fact enslaved in Egypt. And the next chapter of the family drama unfolds with the liberation of those enslaved peoples with the coming of Moses and the whole Exodus saga, all a part of that continuing drama that the thread runs through all the way to the later stories of Ruth and David, as you point out. And it is out of that tradition that the story of Jesus's birth is also born and conveyed and then becomes a part of a series of teachings that also include family dramas. One of the most notable ones in the Christian tradition and unique to Luke's gospel, and often one of the readings in the season of Lent, in the liturgical year when we're doing the gospel of Luke, the prodigal son story appears. And again, in parable form, another example of a family drama that is both an expression of reconciliation, but also shows the frayed relationships that are at the heart of every family. Because, of course, we know what happens with the younger son who takes off and disperses his inheritance in dissolute living is one of the translations. And when he returns, he's not only welcomed, but his father runs out to greet him. And then, of course, famously throws a party, slaughters the fatty calf, at which point the other son enters. And what had seemed like a story of reunion and reconciliation, but also sort of a reclaiming of his place in the family, is then disrupted again by the understandable, for most of us, response of the older son, who was obedient and faithful and remained at home and did all that the father expected of him, and did not feel that he received the kind of abundant showering of love that the younger son received. Now, of course, we also know some of the particulars of the social structure, and that the older son at that time was the chief inheritor, and therefore had, and I'll just use the term, special status or special privilege. And yet, even in and through that, this contrast of the two sons and that sense of reconciliation. And the parable actually ends with question mark. There's no real clarity about whether the older son, who was invited to join in the celebration, whether he accepts the invitation or not. I like parables that end with a question. The loose ends aren't neatly tied up. I like it especially when there is, as there is in this particular parable, an invitation to explore more deeply what reconciliation can look like. Because the open-endedness of that parable invites us to explore what is my responsibility or what is my invitation in reconciliation? And what does that look like? 
And of course, that can play out in many different ways. But drawing on our conversation toward the end of our time looking at forgiveness around accountability, around amendment of life, around the basic moral principle of fairness, all kinds of questions are raised in this story. And they're valid questions. And how we wrestle with the questions can teach us about what it means to journey into the territory and ultimately the promise of reconciliation. And as you stated earlier, it seems very clear and apparent that our agency is a crucial part of that process. And that is part of God's invitation to us. So where do we show up in the story? Where do we exercise our sense of accountability to others in whom we are in relationship with? Where do we demonstrate the accountability that actually creates fairness? And where is there space for a kind of abundant love and forgiveness? Prodigal, of course, has two meanings, which is a part of the beauty of that translation. Prodigal can mean generous and expansive. And it can also mean prodigal as in the son who is wayward, who has left the path. And both are true in that story. And it invites us, as you pointed out with the Joseph story, to hold those two realities together and to say that reconciliation means that we have to pay attention to both the promise of coming back together and the tension that's inherent in those relationships. That, to me, has an authenticity and an integrity to the drama that we are exploring when we look at the biblical narratives and at the family dramas that are contained. That has an integrity that matches the authenticity of our own human experience. We know what that tension is like. We know how the older son felt or how Joseph's brothers felt. We may know also the wonderful welcome and embrace of the father when we have gone astray. We may also know what it was like to sit with Joseph for a time imprisoned because he told the truth. All of that is a part of where we find not only human agency, but the fingerprints of God in this drama. And it does feel very powerful to me that the gift of reconciliation, the promise of reconciliation, is not only about our agency, but about God's. And that is very apparent in the Joseph narrative and the narrative of Tamar. And in a metaphorical sense, it shows up in the prodigal son as well. It strikes me that the key word in your observations might be disruption, that there is a great deal that goes on both in the narrative of the prodigal son and in the entire Joseph story, as in other places in scripture, that disrupts our notions of the right order of doing things. So the line of the Messiah results from a woman who has to resort to pretending to be a sacred prostitute in order to conceive the children. She believes herself, in a sense, to be owed by her husband's family. The disruption of birth order, inheritance, it's all over the place in both our scriptures. And this sense of disruption being a repeated element put before us to ponder as we share what we experience as sacred retellings draws me to an observation about something inherent in the kinds of conversations that you and I are seeking to have. And that the Lenten season, the approach to Passover and Easter, is a particularly useful time, I think, to take a look at that issue of disruption. Interfaith conversations are often used as opportunities for the participants to share their sense of the oughts of their tradition. 
In other words, I'm going to tell you the best parts of Jewish practice and belief, because I'm looking for, you know, what's the highest aspirational level of belief and practice in my tradition. And then I will critique the is's of Christianity and everything that from a Jewish perspective is completely wrong theologically, how you're wrong and how you've treated Jews for 2,000 years, and so on. Which is not to say that that's not a conversation we have to have. There is a huge elephant in the room, which we can name Jewish-Christian relations, and that elephant needs to be made a bit more transparent. I'm looking at my desk at the moment, and I have a glass tortoise here. I need a glass elephant to remind me that we need some transparency around the stuff where we know our relationship is fraught. And there are lots of relationships of larger social import, racial relationships and gender relationships and relationships between social classes and between countries. There's all sorts of places where we have to, as human beings, consider what does it mean to talk about the is's, the realities of our experience, and not use our oughts, our aspirations, or how we would like to think of ourselves in the best light as the way to beat up on one another as we struggle together to figure out what does it mean to take seriously our responsibilities to reconcile with one another. That in the Passover season, what we're doing is putting a spotlight on certain themes that have a meta, an overarching role in the unfolding of our ritual lives. We have daily reminders in our liturgy of the going out from Egypt. Things that we do, Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim, for the sake of remembering the going out from Egypt, occur liturgically, daily, weekly, every Shabbat, at every holiday, every time we offer certain kinds of blessings, we always remember that we do this in order to remember the going out from Egypt. The salvational narrative that Passover represents for us is woven into every day of Jewish living. And what were we pulled out of that narrow place for, but to be a holy people? So how do we live that? If that's what we were, in a sense, saved for, if that's why God is Yeshua, is our Savior, what does that mean in terms of how we live, how we interact with one another? How do we find the capacity to achieve what we pray for every day, which is some verses from Leviticus 11, 11.21 in particular, that if we live into the mitzvot, the commandments, the divine directives we've inherited, we will live days of heaven on earth. How sweetly that can resonate with the salvational aspirations of Easter, but how difficult it is within the larger context of 2,000 years of very fraught history. So I think one of the things that we might look towards in our season two would be a deeper discussion of making that elephant a bit more transparent, finding ways of talking around our ises, around our wounded places, and finding ways to support one another in the seeking of salvation as we respectively understand it. I love that you picked up on the word disruption, and then how that, if we pay attention to that, can teach us both a sensibility around one another's tradition, as well as the invitation to accountability, to amendment of life, to repair of relationship. And whether that be in the context of the conversations we're having 
and of the respect and understanding and deepening appreciation of one another's traditions and their own integrity and how we can stand side by side and find the points of connection, but also celebrate the ways that we differ. Or as you point out, whether we're having a conversation as we are, as you know, in our diocese here around race and the history of race and where we need to account for ourselves and to pay attention to what the dysfunctional narrative has been and what is the history, so to speak, the family history in the Episcopal Church of the way that we've treated our sisters and brothers of different ethnic and racial backgrounds, all a part of this invitation to reconciliation and to use our agency hopefully in a consistent way with the invitation of the Holy One to tell the truth about what happened, to not only account for ourselves, but in terms of amendment of life, ask the questions, the harder questions about what does repair look like? What might restitution or restoration, what might be necessary for that to truly restore relationship? All of that is at the heart of the family dramas that we share, the drama of the season of Lent, and the drama of the holy seasons in your tradition as well. Such a great note to end on as we finish our Lenten look at repentance and sacrifice and forgiveness and reconciliation. We hope you've enjoyed Season 1 of To Differ is Divine. And will join us for season two when we return in September 2023.